Hello dealers, I'm Lynn Wolf, and thanks for joining us for the Rural Lifestyle Dealer Podcast Series. We're talking with Dan Weingartz, the owner of Weingartz, about parts management and how to increase profits from parts. Weingartz is a six-door dealership based in Michigan. Dan was a recent presenter at our Dealer Success Academy, our online and on-demand event. Here's a comment from Dan. The parts businesses and the profits that are derived from parts business have been a key driving force for our business. Um, I'm going to share today four areas that we we really concentrate on that have really been instrumental for our success and that we look at as we continue to grow our parts business in a in an environment that's increasingly competitive with all kinds of new competition. Listen in to the discussion during Dan's portion of the Dealer Success Academy, where he shares how they are increasing parts profits by gathering data, having the right pricing strategies, making the most of purchasing programs, and utilizing trained experts. We start with you know making database decisions and, and having good data to, to, to base good decisions on and, and how we kind of collect that information. And then uh, I talk a fair amount about pricing and, and how important that is, I think, to the overall parts business and, uh, and some of the strategies that we've used and some of the help that we've gotten um, to develop those strategies. And then utilization of vendor purchase programs. So, you know, the other side of, of the profit equation in parts is the cost side. And so if you can reduce costs, you know, so if we can increase pricing, that's, that's one great way to increase margins. But there's another way is to, to reduce our costs and, and to be able to maximize margins um, through the utilization of, of kind of vendor purchase programs. And then, you know, finally, and, and probably most importantly, having the right kind of trained experts on staff to help grow the parts business. It is, it is critical. You know, people are everything in our business and all aspects of our business. And so it is no different in the parts business is that we, we do the best when we have the best people um, that are out selling parts for us. So we start with database decisions. The parts business, more than anything else, I think, in our, in our business is really data reliant. You know, we are dealing with um, hundreds of thousands of SKUs. With some manufacturers, or if you're carrying many manufacturers, you're probably dealing with even millions of SKUs. And so having good data is critical to making good decisions. You just can't do it based on feel or kind of intuition because uh, there's just too much. There, there's too many part numbers. There's there's too many different manufacturers. There's too many programs that you've got to have good data um, in order to, to to make good decisions. And one thing that you'll hear is is kind of as the, the crux of, of my discussion today is that we've got to have parts in stock. So the fact that there's millions of potentially millions of SKUs that that we could stock and that customers could want from us. Um, doesn't give us a pass on the fact that we've got to have the parts in stock that the customer needs. Um, we're operating in the era of, of Amazon. You can have anything to your door in a day or two. You know, just about literally almost anything that's made, you can have into your, in, in your door in a day or two. So having parts in stock is a big competitive advantage of our brick-and-mortar dealership. Immediacy is a huge advantage of a physical location, when, especially in the parts business where something breaks down, Somebody has the time to fix it now, and, and a lot of times they want to get that project done. And so if we have the parts in stock, we can take all the other competitors out of the market because, you know, we, we've got the ability to, to give them the part right now. But if we rely too much on, on back orders, 
and and using our vendors as our as our as our stock for most part, it really puts our our dealerships at a much greater risk of losing business to to e-commerce. And I think that's one of the ways that we can hedge that. Um, you know, certainly e-commerce is a bigger and bigger piece of the of the overall parts business all, all the time. But I do think that our brick and mortar dealerships will always play a big role as long as we have customers that trust that we're going to have the part most of the time. And so that's why the data becomes so important is because just because there's lots of different parts that, that could be needed, um, we've got to have the data to say, what do we need to have to make it so most of the time that we've got everything that a customer needs and, and to build that trust relationship that they can come to us and not have to go look to other sources to, to get their parts. So, uh, Dan, just wanted to, to pop in here quickly, Ben. Uh, so this idea of this database decisions, is this something that you've always followed within your dealership related to parts or something that's evolved over the years as, as your parts business has grown? Certainly, if I look back, you know, 30 years, 35 years ago, uh, it was it was much more difficult to, to have the, you know, good data. And, and so we... I would say we've always, yes, we've always used a lot of data to, to make those decisions. It's just so much easier now, and, and there's so much more of it that's available that it, it, it just takes so much less time to, use, to, um, to analyze that information to make good decisions. It's, it's really things that used to take, um, you know, whole days in order to do like a stock order. Now we can do in, in a couple of hours and make better decisions just because we have so much more information uh, historically through through computerization. And so I would say it's probably not changed a lot in the last, uh, you know, 20 or 25 years since we've had kind of modern uh, point of sale systems. But we've always used it even back in, in the old days. It was just a you know, kind of the tally sheets that we would that we would get together to, to make those kind of purchase decisions. Um, but now it it's uh, with a little bit of work, you can do a lot of a lot of good to decide. You know, kind of what you should and shouldn't stop. Which kind of brings me to you know, what data do you need to collect? You know, we start with with usage. So we need to understand what customers are purchasing and have good tracking of quantities for each month to ensure that we have the inventory in stock before the customer needs it. One great thing about the parts business is that the cycles are pretty predictable. Um, yeah, you get occasionally, you get the, the few percent of the parts that maybe in, a, in one year or another, there's a, a lot of replacement due to uh, some kind of failure, usually on a new, on a new product where you, get, where you get something maybe that's breaking a lot in the first year. But the vast majority of the parts business cycles are pretty predictable. We know that in the spring that we sell, you know, you know, some blades and filters and, and those kinds of things. And we know that the spindles and PTO clutches in the summer and, and those kinds of, you know, so the numbers bear that out. We don't have to, we don't have to use a lot of intuition there because we can see the history that says, yep, that's when these, uh, that's when these numbers start to, to build up. And so, you know, it, it doesn't make it that difficult to have that uh, maybe 30 days ahead of when that cycle is hitting. And so, again, um, you know, kind of the modern point of sale systems today make a lot of this easy. We just got to use, uh, I shouldn't say easy, but it makes it a lot more doable. We just got to make sure we're using the data that, that's there. The second piece after usage is lost sales. 
So, you know, the, the, the only failure of usage is if we don't know what we're not selling um, because we don't have it in stock, then it, it leaves a gap there of what we should be, what we should be bringing in that we're, that we're losing because somebody called up and we didn't have it in stock and so they decided to go online or do something else or they came into the store and, and we didn't have it. And so, so we need to know what, we need to include those lost sales in with our usage to really get an idea of, of what we should stock. But then there's fill rate, and I think that's a very important metric. It's how often, you know, we have the part in stock that a customer wanted. And again, I think this is what builds up trust from the customer standpoint on how, how they can kind of count on us to have parts when they need them. I really believe that uh, under 80% is problematic um, for most dealers. You know, so certainly there's some dealer business models that if you've got a lot of lines and some of those short lines maybe it's difficult to stock effectively a high percentage of the parts. But on your main lines and in most dealerships, I really believe 80% is kind of a bare minimum. I think we should be probably shooting for the high 80s, low 90s. It's the vast majority of the time that somebody comes in that we have th their part in stock. In, in our business, we actually tr track fill rate two different ways. We track fill rate on the line item, which is a common way, um, but we also track what we call whole, whole order fill rate. Um, meaning, did we miss even if a customer came in and needed eight parts, but we had to back order one of them, that we count that as that we that we missed the whole order because ultimately they couldn't get the job done that they needed to get done, and so that's something that we really um, also look at. And so, so I think it's it's important just to take a look at you know what kind of confidence are you building with customers? You have the parts in stock when they need them, and um, and so I think you know fill rate's a great way to track you know, our progress there. And then I guess I just want to bring up a point that almost everybody that in, in the industry that talks um, about kind of the key metrics in the parts business talks about inventory terms. I guess I'm a little unique, and I think our business is, a, you know, our um, philosophy is a little unique, but I'm, I'm just not a big fan of using terms as a standalone metric. So much depends on the terms that they come with those terms that I believe high turn numbers can be as big of a problem as low term. And uh, it's, it's just, it's always terms relative, terms relative to terms is that if we're getting bigger discounts, if we're getting higher fill rates, if we're getting better payment uh, terms, that could be a great reason to, to want to lower your, your turn number where I, I'm a personal believer that, Turns is the easiest if, if uh, a parts manager or a purchasing manager is responsible for turns as a metric. Uh, it's the easiest number to make because you just you keep your inventory down. And but what you often do is you're giving away profitability. You're increasing your your cost of put away because you're ordering so much more frequently, and then you're, you're losing out on potential programs that that could give you a a greater uh, opportunity of profit because you're buying it better. And so so I'm just not a fan. So turns are important. I, I don't want to make it sound, but they're, but they're relative. I don't think that there's a number there that we can say this is good or that's bad because it, it depends so much on what are the terms and, and how are you doing purchasing. I would much rather look at obsolescence or what we have to write off, you know, because we've got debt inventory rather than turns because um, it could, there could be very good reasons that you're buying a year's worth of, 
of stock, which is by definition, you know, a single turn, but because of the discounts that are offered or the terms that are offered. So I had a, a question about that, Dan. Um, so when you're in with the idea of inventory turns, uh, you said that you're not a fan of it and you gave a, gave a lot of great reasons. Are you not measuring it at all or is it just something that you're looking at occasionally if you maybe see some issues with any of your other metrics? No, we do measure it. And um, it's just that we don't set targets that are absolute on it. So we, we look at it, it as a way to identify that maybe one way or the other, either that we're not ordering enough when we should be, or that we are that we, that we have gone and, and we're ordering too much of on some items, and then it's a way to be able to dive in to those numbers. But I think what what we do differently than a lot is we don't just set a, a we've got a lot of targets in our in our parts business. We get targets for for margins and we've got, you know, targets for obsolescence and we've got, so there's lots of numbers that we set out kind of as, as metrics. Um, and, you know, certainly fill rate is, a, is the number one our purchasing manager is responsible for is that, you know, that we, um, that we keep our fill rates up. Those are things that I think you can do in an absolute way and say, these are, these, this is where we should be based on what we're kind of building our model around. I just think that using turns is kind of that absolute. It's a good, way to look at other numbers, but, uh, but not necessarily to do it as a standalone. And, and one thing that I would say that like one of the big hidden things, like we've always, we've always stocked a lot. We've always used the, the purchasing programs more than probably average. We've gone even farther that way as we look at what the expenses of receiving. Um, putting away parts is very expensive. So, so the more often that we've got to buy a part, especially um, inexpensive parts. You know, we, we've gone to, you know, as much as possible, let's only buy that part once or twice in a year because um, the put-away is such a big piece of the, the overall expense. So you've got cutting the PO, receiving it in, you got to pay the bill, but and then you also got to, you know, you got to get it on the shelf. And so if you it doesn't take much more time to put 10 on the shelf as it does one. And, uh, and so that's something that we've even evolved more over time to say we we should sacrifice some turns for to to limit those costs as well. Pricing, I think, is one of the areas that uh, you know. Frankly, as dealers, I think we just get in our own way. Uh, I know that I do in our business. The, probably the biggest reason that we don't kind of maximize our pricing has more to do with the 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 owners and the principals of the business than it does probably with anything that does that happens in the, in, in the marketplace. Parts managers would probably be second to that is that, you know, we're usually our biggest impediment to maximizing the pricing of parts. I think we underestimate the fact that customers expect parts to be expensive. You know, we're unnecessarily sometimes afraid of our pricing because, because we just think, well, that sounds, you know, that's expensive or, you know, that's only going on a $200 chainsaw. You know, that part can't cost 40 bucks because the chainsaw is only 200 So, yeah, there's some truth to that, but people also understand the parts are expensive. And anything that we go and buy parts for, whether it's our, you know, our automobiles or, you know, it's, it has made a lot of electronics and consumer goods um, kind of not worth buying parts. But a lot of what we sell, um, you know, people, I think, expect that the parts are going to be expensive. I think that too often we get, we kind of get in the way of, 
of maximizing where that pricing could be. I also think it's an area we don't spend enough time on. And we let our manufacturers kind of set pricing and determine our parts profitability. We've got, you know, suppliers that are at, you know, 30% dealer margins on parts. And if we just go and run that at list price, I think we're doing ourselves a big disservice. You know, that's the list price is a is a suggestion from a from a manufacturer. It should not set what our pricing should be. So we should be determining our own price profitability. And I think it's an area also. It doesn't take. It just takes some focus. I mean, I I would probably say if you if you spent a day a year um, on working on how we maximize pricing in parts, you could probably do a great job with it, but but we just gotta have some vigilance on how we do it. You know, we do that with equipment pricing, we take lots of factors into consideration, we're trying to figure out how we're gonna maximize margins, but in parts, I think partially because of the number of SKUs that we're dealing with and, and kind of the complexity of it, that we don't take that kind of same vigilance and say, how do we maximize, you know, what we can do to um, to make as much as we can on, on the parts that we're selling. So, uh, Dan, just a, yeah. um, I'm sorry, so, uh, just to ask a couple questions there. So the idea um, came to mind about the amount of time that it might take to, to really spend yeah. on parts, but you're saying you found it, it isn't uh, overly time-consuming, so that should go away for dealers in terms of concerns. Um, and then what about the other concern, you know, related to that, you know, raising prices and that um, if other dealers in, in the area are not following that strategy, uh, you know, you're not going to be competitive on pricing. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's really, it's, it's always important. You know, you can't get arrogant about pricing and think that people don't have other options. I think it, it's an entirely different thing, though, to, to try to say, where can we make an extra four or five points? Because you know, on the typical part, um, that's maybe, you know, if our average part is $40 or something like that, um, an extra $2, um, if we have it in stock, I, it just doesn't chase people away. And, and I think that's, yeah. So to answer a couple of those questions, um, when, let me, I, I think there's some, I, I think that's a lot of the reasons why we do kind of get in our own way. And, and so first and foremost, to, get, to go with your time issue is that, it's like, it's basically impossible to run individual pricing on all your parts. I mean, it just, it's not practical. It's probably not worth your time. So my recommendation is to develop a really good pricing matrix for most parts. And then to really just concentrate on the manual pricing of a few hundred part numbers. It might even be only 100 or 200 part numbers because that's more, much more manageable and that's the stuff that could get you into trouble, like you say, competitively. That's the stuff where people say, well, you know, they seem awful expensive. You know, that, that spark plug was $4.99 and I could buy it at, at the Napa store for, for $2.50. That, those are the kinds of things that, that can get us into trouble and get us kind of the reputation of being overly high priced. But I think it's unlikely to happen um, with a set of piston rings. And because people just don't, they're not buying it often enough. They don't have a great frame of reference. And so they're going to go, um, and we'll talk a lot about the people aspect of this and how much I think that plays a part into your ability to, to, to um, make your margins as good as possible because I think people ultimately want to go to where they feel comfortable. They want to go to who's going to have it. 
And, and then I think now when we're talking about an extra four or five, even maybe seven or eight percent um, in, in price, I think is um, much more doable. And then we also got to understand who our competition really is. We, uh, a dealership that has um, big parts inventory and has got, you know, parts people that are experts in what they do should not put themselves in competition with, uh, with a shade tree, um, you know, kind of somebody that's doing it on the side or um, it's, a, it's a gas station that also um, does, uh, has a small parts, parts room or something like that. If, if those spices are cheaper on parts, I think people understand that and, and we can't put ourselves in competition with everybody. But there is no doubt that e-com is, is, uh, is a big factor now. And so we do have some kind of upper limits on where we can be on things. But I think that's where it, it's important how you develop your matrix. And, and the things that, um, because those e-commerce um, competitors also have big costs in shipping and, and, and things like that. That that go away. They go. They get reduced on more expensive parts, and so that's that's one of the things that you know our parts mate, our pricing matrix needs to take a lot of those variables into consideration: cost, sales velocity, what that competitiveness is. You know, some manufacturers just are more competitive than others, and so we may not be able to get quite as much margin there. But in general, I think when we start, you know, cost being the, the number one driver is that you know. Um, there's a lot of expense that goes into really cheap parts. Something that is uh, that costs us a dollar, and we make a 50% margin on, is still only a buck. You know, 50% margin is still only a dollar on that part, and and there could be a lot of work that went into the customer interaction, putting it on the shelf, having it stocked. We've got to look at you know a 50% margin might be good um, in general, but on a part like that, it probably needs to be 70% so that we can, you know, so that we can recoup those costs and make as many of those transactions profitable as we can. I will say, I think that, you know, we've gotten, we've done uh, a fair amount of work with uh, the Bob Clements group. And I do think their matrix is, is a great starting point. It might be something that you feel like you got to tweak a little bit here or there, but I think theirs brings a lot of these variables into consideration and does a good job of how do we manage competitiveness along with, you know, kind of our, our margin maximization. And so I think that's a great starting point. If you, if you've got access to, to what they're doing, I think that's a, a great place to get, you know, to, to, to kind of set it and then, and then make some, some adjustments too. But then it is really important and uh, to, to make sure that those top volume parts are priced according to the market. That's where you've got to do some market research. That's where it's probably worthwhile to take a look at what some of the, the online competitors are, what some of the, the kind of the mass competitors, whether it's the Napa's or, the, or, or even the Home Depot and Lowe's and, and kind of you know, where they're pricing things at. And, and it may be necessary to make a lower margin on some of these items just to be viewed as competitive on everything that we sell. You know, uh, again, going back to the spark plug, if, if people have an idea of what a spark plug or what two-cycle oil is, is going to cost, it's probably important that we're, that we're priced competitively there so that we don't get questioned as much on making a few extra points on the stuff that, that really is costly for us to stock and, and it doesn't sell quite as fast. Um, I've had the opportunity to go through a workshop with uh, uh, kind of a pricing expert. Not, you know, that's that's what. Uh, so Casey Brown is a woman who 
is really does uh, the focuses on on pricing and how how you can maximize pricing even in very competitive markets and and areas that you can look at to to try to um, get greater margin. And she uses an example of the price of gasoline um, versus the price of hot sauce. And if we ask somebody the price of gasoline um, in their town, almost everybody could probably get within a dime of what a price a gallon of gasoline costs. Everybody would be within 20 or 30 cents. Like everybody has some idea what the price of gas is. But if you ask somebody the price of a bottle of hot sauce, you might get prices that range from a buck to ten dollars. And because it's not something that we, you know, gasoline, there's there's the signs everywhere. We're buying it most likely every week or at least every other week. Um, hot sauce, we might be buying once every six months. It's not that big of a expenditure um, in our overall kind of you know spending budget. And so, if if hot sauce was uh, if the going price for, for hot sauce was three ninety nine, and we were at four ninety nine or even five ninety nine, most people wouldn't think twice. They'd buy the hot sauce because that's what they need. So knowing what in our business is looked at from a consumer like gasoline. And what is looked at more like hot sauce, I think, is a is a good way to think about things. You know, what do people have a frame of reference for? And those things we've got to make sure that we're very competitive on. And and it's not about gouging customers. It has nothing to do with that. It's about what's the best way to offer the services so that we can fund to have more parts in the stock to be able to have a profitable parts department and to pay for the, the expertise and the and the people that we need. And so so I think. Unfortunately, though, what we do as business owners, we have a tendency to think most of our items are like gasoline. And when the reality is that probably 99% of what we sell in the parts department is more like hot sauce. And um, so we have a tendency to think that people, you know, the, the reality is it's a small purchase in relative to what things are. Now, you know, if we're going to sell in a, a, a pump or a wheel motor, um, that's that's four hundred dollars. Yep, people are going to check the price. We got to make sure that we're competitive. Those are things that that you know are are big purchases. But even things as large as a as a spindle um, or you know what we consider kind of a big part, it's a job that needs to get done. I think there's a lot of people that'll just say you know I need to buy it, get it, and if it seems within the realm of possibility, um, it's not it, it, we're not going to get any questions. And so again. It's the easiest way, I think, to, to try to, you know, get an extra, you know, four or five, maybe even seven or eight points. And on those cheaper parts, for certain, you know, it might be a way to gain 15 or 20 percent on those parts um, to be able to blend our margin. My last comment on pricing is, and this is one that I, I guess I just think that is uh, like an absolute uh, no-brainer. There's not too much that I think in business is a no-brainer. But just remember to take the easiest money. You know, a price shouldn't be twenty three forty two. It could just as easily be twenty three ninety nine. There's no difference to the customer. Um, customers expect pricing like that. You know that there's going to be. So rounding up to the ninety nine cents is a way to to make an extra. You know, two or three points. Um, and this example, I think it's uh, it's about two and a half percent to round up that fifty seven cents without doing anything from a competitive stand, standpoint. If your competitor was at Twenty three forty two and your twenty three ninety nine. There's nobody that's leaving over over that fifty seven cents. And so, so those are the things that I think also 
I think that's just a, again, with modern computer systems, makes it, you know, pretty easy just to say, you know, let's round those up to 99 cents to, um, to take advantage of, of a couple extra points of, of margin there. Dan Weingartz has shared some good details about how they incrementally increase margins and are smart about those strategies. For instance, he says, you can't get arrogant about parts pricing and think that people don't have other options. And he says by increasing the profitability of your business, you can actually serve customers better by having more parts on hand, as well as having a better trained parts staff. Let's continue listening in as Dan covers how they make the best use of purchasing programs and why a trained staff is so critical to their success. The other side of the margin equation is uh, is the purchasing side. And I think there are huge opportunities that go largely unfilled to improve our profitability um, and our customer experience in the utilization of vendor purchasing program. You know, so the greater the opportunities for greater profitability, I think everybody understands. You know, they we get better discounts, we get better terms a lot of times on these on these purchasing programs. And so everybody can see the opportunity for greater profitability. I think some of the things that one of the things that gets discounted though is that in addition, when we utilize these programs well, we can we can stock to a, a greater breadth of parts, increasing our fill rates, our customer satisfaction, kind of that trust factor that we talked about of getting people to come back into into our parts department. And I really think this is an area where we really got to take a look at it. And this is when I talked earlier about turns. I think the focus on turns. This is this is the area that gets neglected when we kind of standalone look at at turns as as a key metric in the parts business, because these are programs oftentimes that are very beneficial. Um, we've got you know manufacturers that are you know many of them offering discounts of you know between like five and twenty percent. And that can be game-changing for parts margins. I mean, you start talking about um, even at the low end of that, even at a 5% discount, if you've got, if it's something that you're making 40% and being able to take that to 45, I mean, you just increase margins by 12 points, you know, 12% um, more margin on those parts. And those are discounts that should be retained by the dealership. This should not be passed on to your customers. You know, the matrix should be based on what your regular cost is. The advantage of a purchasing program should be that you're taking greater inventory risk and getting margin to and profitability um, to offset that. And so when we have those kinds of discounts, we really got to make sure that we're looking at how can we utilize those discounts to really improve our margin and to give us the ability to stock more parts, um, both in breadth and in depth, at a more affordable way, in a more affordable way. And so... I, I really think this is an area where, where there's great opportunity. Um, a lot of times the extended terms on these programs can allow a dealer to sell through enough of the inventory at cash flow to program purchase before it's even due. So we get, you know, a program that has um, August term. But we may not be we may not sell through all of the parts by by the time it's due. But if it's if you're making um, a forty percent margin and you're able to sell through 70% of the parts, well, we've already cash flowed that entire purchase before it came time to, to, to actually pay the bill. And so I think when we look at the terms of those, you know, cash flow is always a concern 
when we look at, you know, these big program purchases. But a lot of times the terms will help to offset that so that you get the discount plus the terms so that you can actually cash flow the program purchase by the profit that you're making on the parts um, by the time it, uh, it's due. And then I think, you know, the real, you know, where this all kind of comes together is, you know, it's, it's not uh, getting big discounts on parts is no good if you're just creating obsolescence. If, you, if, uh, if you're getting a 10% discount and but 10% of your of the parts that you bought became obsolete, well, then you just washed and there's no, there was no advantage. But what we need to do is we need to combine the purchasing program with utilizing return allowances. Because I really think that's kind of the base of a successful inventory management system. So we've got to be taking advantage of those return allowances. And a lot of the stock order programs actually have return allowances that are tied to the size of that order. So you can order broader and deeper, utilize the discounts in terms of the program, and give yourself the ability to return more parts that didn't sell from a previous program order. So, you know, just as, a, as an example, so, you know, uh, there's a part purchasing program that maybe if you're ordering more conservatively, it would be a $10,000 order, and you're getting a 10% discount on that, on that order. And they're also offering you a 10% return allowance on anything that you order on that stock order. Let's say, you know, stretching that and going a little bit deeper in, in our inventory and going, you know, ordering a few more parts that we're going to stock that maybe would be questionable items that maybe we're selling several times a year, but not maybe enough that would be normal, you know, stock quantities, um, you know, something that we're selling three or four or five times in a year. And we make that now a, a a $15,000 order instead of a $10,000 order. We have $500 more that, that, you know, from the discount side that goes to the, the bottom line of our parts department. And then if we've got $1,500, if that $15,000 order has a 10, 10% that, you know, return allowance attached to it, we've got $1,500 of that 5,000 extra that we kind of ordered that we can return. It's almost would be unheard of that, that 30% of those parts that we ordered, we would, that wouldn't sell. And so, so usually those return allowances, if we keep up on them, are much larger than what our kind of our obsolescence is going to be if, if we order a little bit broader and a little bit deeper. And so what we find is that we generally have, you know, with, we put in very large program orders and, and we utilize those programs a lot we usually have more return allowance than, than what we need. And as long as we keep up where, where we make the mistake, and I think, you know, anybody has fallen into this trap is that, you know, we don't keep up on our returns and then we don't do a return for a year or two. And now, and now we've got three years worth of parts to return. And then, then we've got problems that we don't have enough ability to do so. But if we're doing a good job of managing that and doing the returns, it's really, the part business, again, is more predictable sometimes than we think it is. And, and generally speaking, we have enough, you know, more than enough return allowance to, for, for the purchasing mistakes that we'll make. You know, you know when you do go broader and deeper on, on purchasing programs, you're going to make some, some purchasing mistakes it's by nature. If you can keep most of that from being uh, obsolete, you know, is that you're going to have some obsolescence, but... You know, even with the way that we kind of manage things, our obsolescence is in, in, the, in the range of about 1% a year. And so when we look at the extra margin that we bring in on these programs, to throw away 1% of our parts is, 
is an easy decision um, to get that extra, like I say, five to twenty percent in in purchasing discount. So with everything in our business, it all starts and ends with people. I mean, it is we nothing has you know the, the thing that has stayed the most constant, I guess, in the business in the thirty five years that I've been in the business is that it is very much a people business and people are our biggest competitive advantage in every area of our business and parts is absolutely no different. Having staff that help can help customers feel confident in their parts purchase is a huge advantage over the competition. We also operate a, a, a relatively significant e-commerce parts business. And we have found that our online customers' biggest resistance to purchasing is the uncertainty that they're ordering the right part. Is that So we get a lot of people that will uh, put parts in a cart and then not order them. And, and ultimately what we find is that they just weren't confident that that was the right part that they needed for their machine to, to do their job. So a confident and knowledgeable parts staff can reduce or, or maybe even eliminate that obstacle and make people feel very confident that they're getting the right thing. When that happens, we absolutely win over all of the competition, whether it's other brick and mortar stores, whether it's the box stores, or whether it's our e-commerce um, competitors. Because when we can, when our part staff can, can make that feel confident, then you've added a lot in the, in the form of, um, of convenience. You know, it's not more convenient to, to order parts from Amazon and then and then wait to see if maybe it was the right part or not the right part. If you know that you're getting the right part, that's a huge factor for customers, and I think it's one that um, ultimately is is our biggest competitive advantage as we go forward as brick-and-mortar dealers against all the new competition, and it's, we've got to have part staff that is, um, is very good at, at making people confident in their purchase. And then, you know, that knowledge in parts isn't just limited to technical expertise. Parts staff also needs to understand customer service elements like, you know, timeliness and friendliness. And, you know, it's all part of that parts purchasing experience. And, you know, we've, we've got to be able to wait on customers in a timely manner. We've got to be able to answer the phones, you know, in a timely way. We've got to make them feel like, you know, too often it's, it's very easy for uh, in the spring of the year to, for customers to feel like an inconvenience and like that they're adding to, you know, the workload of, of our people. And we just got to make sure that they understand that they're focused on that customer at that time. And they understand that, um, you know, that experience is important to them and, and, uh, and, and that they really can make a difference in kind of usually a bad it's usually something bad happened if you're buying parts. You know, something broke and I need to, um, want, you know, you do have the maintenance parts. But usually it's something's broke. And, and if somebody can take the time and, and understand kind of those customer service elements as well, um, it's very important. And we've found that oftentimes more important than, than the actual technical knowledge. Both are, are, are you know, kind of key to, to a great experience. Um, but if we're going to have one or the other, um, somebody that's going to be patient and and uh, and caring and uh, is going to ask good questions is oftentimes even more important than having that technical expertise. And so, 
you know, and it, and it does not require, you know, being confident and knowledgeable does not require 20 years of industry experience. That's great. When we have people with that kind of experience, we love them. We try to make sure they never want to leave and we want to make sure that they, this is the place that they want to work because there is no, you know, replacement for that experience. But I do believe that good training on the tools and technology that are available and, and training on that customer service experience, kind of the, the more general, you know, how do we treat customers? How do we do this in a, in a friendly and timely way can get employees up to speed much faster than in the past. We used to say that a good parts person didn't become kind of efficient for two years. And, and I mean, that's just such a long lead time to, you know, to put into somebody in training. And then, and then if you do have turnover, you know, it, you know, to replace and start that two year process over again, I don't believe that's the case anymore. The technology is much easier to use and customer expectations have changed. You know, they, they don't no longer expect somebody at the parts counter to be able to, to fix their, their item. They just want them to help them find what they needed to be, to be able to do it. And so using those tools and using the technology um, has been able to get people that are really good at the customer service piece and understanding kind of the customer expectations up to speed much faster than they did in the past. And so, so that two-year time frame is now more like we can do these things in two or three months versus um, a couple of years where somebody could be really good at what they do. So I had a question about that. Um, the idea of really finding the right people is just a, a huge issue for small businesses across any industry. And, and uh, you know, you had talked about the, the training, and, uh, but then also the, the soft skills of customer service. So there's, there's not a manual that you can look up uh, how to uh, have good customer service, especially when, uh, like you said, people are coming in, they're frustrated about their machines. So are you doing, with the, the customer service training, are you doing some training in the beginning to talk with people about how you want them to interact with customers? Um, do you do some check-ins, you know, as they're going along to make sure that they haven't kind of eroded some of those skills? You know, how do you do that? I would tell you, you know, it's an area where we're very much a work in progress. Um, we know that we can't put too much time in on that kind of training and education side. But some of the things that we do that have been successful, is so, so number one is, like you say, when somebody's onboarding, we go through a lot of discussion about expectations and, and what we would expect. We talk a lot about our values and how those values relate to what we do um, so, that, so that people don't make the big mistakes. You know, is that, you know, so that they can go and even as they're kind of learning on the job, that they know where the, the guidelines are, that we're always going to be honest, we're always going to act with integrity, that we're always going to put the customer first, and that we're going to make sure that services of, of, of the high, you know, it's okay to say I don't know, but it's not okay to give a wrong answer. And, and so we do a, a lot of that in the first couple of weeks, really as part of the onboarding process, before they're even kind of in in contact, regular contact with, with customers, we're going to go through a lot of that kind of expectation and values discussion. Then it's the harder part. Then it's like all of the stuff that comes up. And so what we try to do is put new employees with, uh, with a more uh, experienced, a more seasoned person that does things kind of the right way. And, and do things like review phone calls together. And so we do have, we have a system where we record our, our phone conversations. And so they'll go and listen to phone calls with, 
with a new employee and just give them tips on, you know, if you would ask this question and could have made, you know, we could have skipped a couple of steps here because really, you know, you needed to know a little information, more information before you started looking for their part or a, that was maybe you were a little short with them because you were getting frustrated, but this is an area where, you know, where we can, we can improve. And so it's very much positive reinforcement, trying to find things that they're doing well and then areas that we can kind of give constructive criticism. And then we'll also have, you know, kind of the more formal, you know, kind of uh, watching, you know, standing next to somebody and kind of watching how they're doing those interactions and giving them some feedback there too. So, yes, I would say it's it's an ongoing process for, and, and frankly, even for 20-year for employees, as you say, is that there's things that, that sometimes you just, you fall into habits that you don't even realize. I, I've said is for a lot of those employees that have been doing it, and for myself included, listening to your own phone calls is, is a huge wake-up um, because you're like, I didn't even realize I was doing that. And because you get sometimes get into the habit of, I know what the customer is going to say next. I've had this conversation, you know, a thousand times in my life. And then you didn't even hear what they said because you, you already expected that you knew what the answer was. And, and I've found it to be incredible. It's very humbling and very instructive when I listen to my own calls and just say, Oh yeah, that, that was bad. You know, that was something I, you know, I really didn't kind of do what I trained because I, had different expectations. And so, so yeah, I would say it's, um, there's certainly some kind of formal things as we get started, but then there's lots of checkpoints. We have a, we actually have a, a certification process that people go through that say basically, you know, you know, whether it's writing up a service order or, or looking up parts or things like that, that, that they kind of go through these checkpoints to make sure that they, that they know the, the, you know, kind of the Weingart's way of doing those things. And, and I don't think that that's, um, it's not terribly difficult to, to come up with. And I think it's time, you know, it's been well spent. I hope this has been, you know, um, as I was putting this together, you know, parts is a complicated business, but I, but I, I think, you know, there was some critical factors that we, that I thought were, were worth talking about and sharing. So I hope that, uh, it's been beneficial to, to, um, to some of you that this is, um, you know, jar, and I think most of us kind of know most of these things, but maybe it's um, brought up something that uh, um, was that you that you know, but is kind of falling off the tracks. And so, I can just say that you know, the, the profits that come through our parts operations, is, you know, is absolutely critical. And I, I think it's going to be critical going forward. You know, we we see where equipment margins uh, are. And, and they don't seem to be getting better. And so if anything, they're probably going down with the increasing competition. So the profits that come through parts are going to be, you know, critical to our success and growth as, as dealers. And then, and there's many more competition competitors in this business than there is in the past. We can't just assume that this very important component of our business will continue to generate that profitability. So I think that there are dials that we can turn to make certain that we're taking advantage of those opportunities we talked about, you know, utilizing data and how um, more, you know, the, the easier access to data get, helps us to make better decisions, to be consistently reviewing our pricing and making sure that we're maximizing that, that purchasing, utilizing purchasing programs and really, you know, concentrating on, on acquisition costs. And then, and then finally, making sure that we don't lose, you know, uh, track of the fact that with all the technology and with everything else that's out there, the customer service is still 
you know, really key in, in, in this business are just some of those kind of important points, I think, that as we build parks departments going forward, these are things we're going to have to keep concentrating on. And I just think it's more important than ever that we, that we leverage our competitive advantages and maximize those opportunities as we prepare ourselves for the upcoming competition. Thanks to Dan Weingartz for his insights on parts management during the recent Dealer Success Academy. Accurate data, buying programs, and experts are the pillars to his successful program. In fact, Dan says, parts are where the profits are and parts have always been the lifeblood of our business. It's the biggest reason for us to be in the power equipment business. Try some of his ideas to see if you can increase your own parts profits. Stay tuned for additional podcasts from our experts and dealers. Our podcast is available on Spotify, iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. And if you're not yet a subscriber to our print or digital content, head on over to RuralLifestyleDealer.com and join our community. From all of us at Rural Lifestyle Dealer, I'm Lynn Wolf, and thanks for listening. <music>